Six Figure Developer Podcast, the podcast where we talk about new and exciting technologies, professional development, clean code, career advancement, and more. I'm John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. With us today is Steve Smith. Steve works with companies that want to avoid the trap of technical debt by helping their teams deliver quality software quickly. Steve and his team have been described by clients as a force multiplier, amplifying the value of existing development teams. Steve also offers career coaching to developers through devbetter.com. Welcome, Steve. Hi, it's great to be back. Yes, Steve. So we had you on the show before. Uh, I was just looking that up like almost four years ago, nearly uh, exactly. Uh, what's new in your world? What's What's been going on? Yeah, it really doesn't seem like it's been that long. Um, but you know, with the pandemic, things are going by faster, it seems. Uh, yeah, so what's new? Um we uh, rebranded my consulting practice since then, so now it's uh, Nimble Pros uh, is the is the name of the company, uh, and we've been growing a little bit since then. So I think it was just me independent uh, back in 2018, but uh, now we, now we have a small team uh, and we're you know overwhelmed with uh, work at the moment, which is a good problem to have. Uh, and I also started a coaching program that uh, you mentioned from my bio uh, with DevBetter.com that's been going pretty well as well for developers looking to level up their career. Awesome. So uh, you kind of mentioned Nimble Pros. What what are you working on these days? I'm doing a lot with architecture, uh, domain-driven design, and uh, where those two connect. So things like uh, trying to take legacy .NET framework apps, move them to the cloud, dealing with uh, event-driven architecture, possibly microservices, using techniques like event storming, uh, domain-driven design. Uh, since our last show last year, uh, Julie Lerman and I uh, did a new version of our DDD course on Pluralsight that's been very popular. Uh, and so domain-driven design happens to apply very well to microservices-style architectures. Uh, and so we're, we're using a lot of those techniques with, with companies that are uh, trying to move their systems to the cloud and break up big monoliths with lots of technical debt. And of course, mentioning .NET, we're in February of 2022, and .NET turns 20 this year. Yes, this month, I think. They've, they've got the date down. I think there's a, a party next week, actually, the you know virtual party that the .NET team is hosting. So, yeah, that's uh, exciting and also makes me feel really old. Yeah, I can remember the days before .NET, and we had to suffer through scripting languages and static HTML and VB6 and the like. Have you been in .NET uh, for the last 20 years, or were you an early adopter? I was, yeah. Uh, I graduated from college in the late 90s, and my first uh, jobs used classic ASP, as it's sometimes called now, with VBScript. And uh, as that advanced uh, the state of the art, it was uh, VB6 com components as the closest thing you got to having some kind of separation of concerns between the, the UI and the data access and the business logic and all that. Uh, and then, you know, .NET came out uh, in the early 2000s, and you know, introduced web forms, uh, and I was definitely all a part of that. Yeah, that was that was me. Yep. Yeah, I remember web forms, and and actually, I started in the .NET world in using VB.NET, and uh, did did a little bit of VB.NET, and then did Java for a little while, and then came back 
to uh, to the Microsoft world with C Sharp and starting with uh, MVC version two, I believe. Okay. Yeah, you got in when, well, came back in when we were getting closer to the more modern practices with the MVC frameworks. When I first made the shift to the, the early days of .NET, I was pretty good with, with VBScript. I was pretty good with VB. Uh, I had used C uh, in college because uh, I have a computer science engineering degree from Ohio State. And when I was looking to switch to .NET with VB.NET, uh, I chose not to go to VB.NET for a couple of reasons that that really proved to be you know good. Uh, you know, I'm happy that I made that decision. The first one was that it was really similar to look at VB6 code and look at VB.NET code. But the two languages had enough differences that that was dangerous to, to apply the same, you know, ideas between them. Uh, and so, you know, obviously, if you move from VB6 code to C Sharp, you weren't going to confuse one for the other in your editors. Uh, and then if you looked at what the .NET team was building things in, uh, they were building everything in C Sharp. You know, ASP.NET was written in C Sharp. So it seemed like a good idea to use the language of the developers that were building the framework I was using. Uh, and it turns out 20 years later, that was a good decision. And of course, we're in .NET 6 these days because Microsoft is really good at naming things and versioning things. That really doesn't <laughs> indicate the progression that the .NET language has uh, has taken, has you know, how it has evolved through the years. Can you remind us or, or remind our listeners that might even not have experienced those early days, what are the types or, or what are the things that we used to have to concern ourselves with, that we used to have to struggle with, that maybe are are easier now or abstracted away for us now? Yeah, some things that have changed. Uh, it's, it's important to remember, or I don't know if it's that important these days, but I think it's cool to remember that how cool WebForms was when it first shipped. Because at the time, browsers were not anywhere close to what they are today. There were a whole lot of them, and most of them sucked. And JavaScript was not a language you could actually use for any real programming. Uh, its implementation on the browsers was was not great and not consistent. Uh, and so what WebForms let you do was take this super productive way of building business apps that was VB6, where any developer with, with even, you know, brand new skills uh, could drag and drop things onto a form, uh, text boxes and labels and buttons, and they could create business applications in you know a matter of days or weeks uh, with these tools. And what WebForms did is they took that exact paradigm and brought it to the web, uh, which had never been done before, and that was that was huge. And then you know five or ten years later, we were hating on it because it, it had things like view state, which was how it maintained the state of that form between requests, and it had this design surface that you could use if you wanted that didn't know anything about CSS or or, or later things that came along, uh, and so it was not at all following standard HTML. Uh, but for its intended use of like internal business apps, it, it was great. Uh, so then later on, we we had to deal with the fact that the web was evolving, it was standardizing, it was getting better. JavaScript became a real programming language that was in all the browsers. Uh, and so by the time .NET had turned 10, we were at a stage where people didn't want to use this abstraction over you know intranet forms that was view state. They wanted to use standard HTML. They wanted to use CSS for styling. They wanted to be able to take uh, separation of, of design concerns from the application code. Uh, and that was really hard to do with web forms. Uh, and so we started to see things like MVC uh, ship. And at the same time as 
these applications were maturing and becoming more enterprise ready, uh, things like testing became increasingly important. Uh, things like CI, CD and these other practices that you know were, were there in the 90s. We had things like extreme programming preaching these things in the 90s, but it took a long time for most enterprises to really adopt those practices. Uh, and now I think most enterprises, most development teams take for granted that you're going to have source control, you're going to have a build server, you're going to have some automated tests. Uh, and that was difficult to do with web forms. And so MVC made that easier. Uh, in each implementation of MVC, each additional version, uh, up to and including the, the web API support, uh, made that easier. And so by, you know, I don't know, 2015, 2016, we were in a not bad place, but the 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 team, I think, had had realized that they'd sort of hit a wall with what they could do because some of their next features they wanted, like cross-platform capability or decoupling from Windows and IIS, uh, they were seeing that was impossible to do while staying on what was the, the .NET framework at that time. I was just, um, like, while you were talking about uh, WinForms and WebForms and all that, it was, you know, there is, at least in my mind, even, even though, like, you say WebForms and I'm like, ooh, gross, but then at the same time, I'm kind of like, ah, rapid application development. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> the the applications that were being created, you know, when all that the WinForms and WebForms technology first came out, it was just like slinging code, drag and drop, make this stuff work. Um, there were there were some aspects of it that were that were pleasant. Um, uh, you just didn't realize the, the, the negatives until it was kind of too late. <laughs> but um those were the good old days. Um, That's right. I'm, I'm remembering like partial page postbacks and and Ajax and and having to jump through those hoops to uh, to get the the better user experiences that some of the JavaScript frameworks that were starting to come on on online at that time, uh, and and remembering what we had to do in order to to make some of that work. Right. Yeah. Things like uh, update panels and, and the Ajax control toolkit and things like that. Like we have what is at its heart a server side rendering technology and we're trying to make it look like everything's happening on the client without any trips back to the server. And, you know, that for a while there, that was that was painful. Yeah, but it kind of it kind of made the way for Microsoft to change the entire landscape of web development. I mean, you know, introducing Ajax and um, and the, I mean, it just completely took over after that. Sure. I think, I'm not sure Microsoft necessarily was leading the way on that. I think uh, Gmail probably was ahead of them on some of that. But but yeah, they definitely leveraged their teams. I could be wrong, but I, I thought that they created uh, Ajax, like the original version. Uh, I don't know. We'd have to look that up. I think Ajax stood for asynchronous JavaScript and XML. Uh, and I don't know that Microsoft was the ones that invented that or not, but but maybe. Or maybe they, they bought the people. That- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and and then you know, amazing things happen like SignalR and uh, some some renewed interest in patterns and architecture emerged. And with the advent and the introduction of MVC, people understood that there were patterns like this uh, in MVVM for things like Xamarin and and implementations that kind of covered that. And then we step into where people start realizing that they can have more than one project in a solution where they should maybe separate their concerns a little differently and start planning out their architectures. Yeah, definitely. I think something that's taken a long time for the, the Microsoft uh, developer community to, to really buy into is the dependency management. 
And that's not to say that's true for all developers. Obviously, there's been there have been developers that were, you know, well skilled at that uh, 20 years ago. Um, but I think for the community at large and for the the code that was coming out of Microsoft, it's it's taken a long time. Like the early versions of MVC supported the possibility of of wiring in a dependency inversion container if you really wanted to and you tried hard enough. Uh, and that got easier with each subsequent version. But it wasn't until .NET Core shift that it was built in and expected uh, as as just part of how you built things. And when, when when did .NET Core ship? That was like 2017, wasn't it? For, I think, 1.0? I just Googled it. It says uh, June 27th, 2016 was when it officially shipped. But it was it was in open pre-release and betas for a couple of years there. So, yeah. Yeah, and, and that continued the 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 paradigm of you have to skip the first version because it it wasn't fully baked, it wasn't fully implemented, it wasn't uh, very feature rich. Uh, the next even minor updates introduced breaking changes and and caused a lot of a, ha- a lot of havoc to those early adopters, if I remember correctly. There, there was some of that, uh, and .NET Standard helped, uh, but .NET Standard was pretty rough in those early days too, because the very first versions of .NET Standard didn't have much in it. Uh, and I think that's what led them to calling it .NET Core was because it was only this core subset of of what .NET Framework had. Uh, and I don't know if they saw the writing on the wall with that when they decided that or not, but it was it was obviously uh, a short lived name because you know eventually what was then .NET Core became a superset of .NET Framework and became you know the the way forward that is now .NET six. So if they've you still haven't dropped core from ASP.NET Core and EF Core. I think mainly for uh, you know confusion reasons with the version numbering. Uh, you know if they if they dropped EF Core and they called it EF, we'd have two versions of EF six out there right now, and that would be crazy. Um, but I think probably very soon they'll those will all just be ASP.NET and Entity Framework again, since we'll have version seven coming. Maybe with version seven, then uh, we'll, we'll be high enough in the numbers. Now that we're in a, a regular release cadence, every year we get a, a major version, every other year we get an LTS version. That seems like a pretty big change from earlier .NET to the later .NET is the, that, that release cadence. And that, That's, I think, largely because of the fact that, I mean, they always wanted to ship more frequently, uh, the .NET team, uh, from my recollections of conversations with them. Uh, but they were always held back because .NET was part of Windows. And Windows didn't ship that frequently. And so they they could only take what they could get as far as framework uh, updates uh, and, and actual runtime changes when Windows would ship. And then they'd have to wait for their customers to actually you know adopt it. You know, right now, .NET releases, and, and we all just go grab the latest version, and, and we're good to go. Uh, it used to be that all the developers had to wait until their IT staff decided that it was okay to upgrade Windows for the whole organization. And you know, it might take three years after Windows came out before you'd get a new version of .NET. Nightmares. So, yeah, that's that decoupling is really nice. Yeah, and, and you continue to do a lot of work with the folks around Microsoft and, and open source communities and working on projects like eShop on containers and eShop on web and, and like your clean architecture patterns. And and are you still doing your uh, live coding on Twitch as well? I haven't done any sessions on Twitch for about six months. Um, I just, I've been super busy and trying to get other things done. Um kind of burnt out on it, but I, I might get back into that. I want to try and do more on YouTube because I'm seeing that that seems to be a, a place where you can get a lot more reach uh, 
with Twitch, I would do a two hour coding session. I'd have like 20 people there. I'd take the two hour thing and throw it on YouTube and maybe get a hundred views. Cause it's not a very focused thing. And probably watching that two hour stream was, was not the most enjoyable experience. If I can do a, a 10 minute YouTube video, that's actually scripted and polished and edited and ready to go. I'll probably get, you know, thousands of people watching it. Cause it's, you know, much nicer, but it takes me a whole lot more effort to put one of those together than it does to just code for two hours. Yeah, I enjoyed at least watching some of the the live streams on Twitch with you working on clean architecture and and any of your uh, additional libraries, things like blanking on the name now. Specifications. Specifications. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I enjoyed uh, seeing you work on the specifications project. And, and actually, I need to go back through because I've noticed there's a, a new version, version six, with some breaking changes that I'll need to address in some of my personal projects. But how, how do you determine what is, is an appropriate use of your time working on projects like clean architecture? Is that just something that has evolved with the work you do with your clients? Or, or how did the, the clean architecture project and, and idea come about? I wanted a, a template that I could use um, for client work and for my own projects and demos and things like that. Um, and so, of course, I put it on GitHub because I put all the stuff that I'm working on on, on GitHub uh, if it's not proprietary to a particular client. And that's just you know, something that I think is uh, a win for me in terms of, you know, elevating my uh, credentials in the community. So if, if some client is comparing working with me versus working with a competitor on some consulting project, or if I want to go get a job somewhere in the future, I could say, hey, look at my GitHub, I've done this work. Um, it's just a way to show kind of my credentials. Uh, and at the same time, it's a way for me to reuse that, that code uh, and get improvements from the community. So all of my open source projects, uh, at one time or another, they've gotten community feedback or, or uh, issues or even pull requests for most of them um, that have made them better. Uh, and so by not keeping all those secret and in a vacuum that only I use or only NimblePros uses, um, it's, it's making all of our stuff better and, and I think helping the community as well. So um, I justify it with... Uh, I was going to do that work anyway because I'm curious and I want to learn how this works and I want to figure it out before I do it for a client so that I know it works before I'm experimenting on their dime. Uh, and doing it in the open on GitHub uh, gives me all those benefits. So for anybody who's not familiar with uh, clean architecture, maybe they haven't heard it before, heard about it before or haven't, haven't actually looked at the code, uh, what is it? Is it, uh, you know, like is it a f- project and folder structure? Is it a series of patterns and practices or a methodology or, or what, what exactly is clean architecture? Sure. That's a good thing for us to probably cover. Um, clean architecture is kind of the latest name for something that's been around for a long time, like probably 20 years, uh, that used to be called other things and, and still goes by these names in other communities, uh, like hexagonal architecture, ports and adapters architecture. Uh, Jeffrey Palermo coined the term onion architecture around 2009 in a blog series. Uh, All those things basically are the same as clean architecture, uh, which Uncle Bob Martin had a a book on clean architecture uh, using that name uh, and kind of going along with his clean code and his whole clean series. So um, that's where I think that latest nomenclature comes from. But what is it? It's, It's a way to architect systems uh, so that the core domain logic is not influenced by or coupled to all the dependencies of how the software works with other stuff. That other stuff might be the user through the user interface. That other stuff might be infrastructure, like the hard drive or a database or some foreign API. Um, and so by keeping all the core business logic separated, 
uh, it makes it so it's much easier for you to do things like swap in and out those different uh, other interactors that your program works with. Um, it's also very tightly related to uh, domain-driven design. So if you read Eric Evans's blue book on domain-driven design, it talks about an architecture like this in which your core domain and your domain model is pure and not influenced by persistence concerns or user interface concerns or things like that. In terms of the, the GitHub project I have, I have a clean architecture project and it's also a, a template that you can say .NET new clean architecture and it'll just spin up a solution for you. Um, it is sort of a starting point that lets you achieve the goals of this architecture um, from a starting point that is a Visual Studio solution. Uh, and so it has just a handful of projects. It has a core project, which is where all that domain logic goes, doesn't depend on anything else. It has an infrastructure project, which is where you put all those dependencies. If you're calling it by ports and adapters nomenclature, the infrastructure project is where all the adapters live. So that when you say, hey, I have a, an interface or a port that says I want to send an email, uh, you can have different implementations of how you want to send email, and they would go in that infrastructure project. And whether you're using SMTP locally or you're talking to SendGrid or MailChimp or what have you, um, all of those adapters live in that infrastructure project because they are tightly coupled to those implementation details. And then because it's an ASP.NET Core app, it has an, a web project as the front end. And you can choose whether you're using MVC, Razor Pages, APIs, API endpoints, whatever you want. Uh, it's all in there and you just delete the stuff you don't care about. If I'm not mistaken, I think you might have even presented this during uh, .NET Conf in, in recent years as well, uh, talking around the ideas of clean architecture with .NET. And I think the more we, we hear these terms, the more we understand that we should be giving a little bit more thought into our applications in, in their, their assembly, their maintainability, uh, their, their architecture, then I, I think the better off we will be as the, the applications continue to grow in complexity and grow in features. I think so, yeah. Uh, there, there's certainly a camp out there that feels like any amount of architecture is overkill uh, and that everything should just go in, in one project. Uh, and I think that's fine up to a certain point. But if you're building software that you want to last a long time and be maintainable for that for that time and doesn't fall over from uh, technical debt, I, I've found that dependency management is is one of the biggest things that impacts that. If, when I come into clients that are telling me uh, our code is too big, nobody wants to touch it. Uh, anytime we change things, we're we're having a heart attack on deployment day about what's going to break. Uh, we don't know what the impacts will be if we if we touch this code, uh, and it, it's all because of hidden dependencies. Uh, and just too many tight couplings to dependencies. And so the, the biggest thing that the clean architecture style does is it puts dependency, dependency management up front, and it says anything that goes in that core project has no dependencies, period, right? On, on external stuff that makes it hard to test. It could be depending on something that's pure code, right? So you could have uh, a guard clause library that it depends on, or even something like Mediator, you could depend on there because those are just pure code. They don't couple you to SQL Server or Azure or a file system. Um, and so those types of things you could depend on. Um, but other than that, you don't depend on anything that's going to make it difficult for you to test and change uh, that application logic. And that lets you write unit tests for everything if you want. Uh, obviously, integration tests, functional tests, other types of tests are also valuable. Um, 
But for me, if I can write a unit test for the same thing uh, versus writing a higher level test that tests more of the application integrated together, uh, I'll usually err on the side of writing the unit test because those tend to be smaller, faster, uh, and more efficient to write and run than higher level integration tests for most applications. You mentioned uh, going into some clients, and obviously every client is going to be different, but situations where they're feeling the constraint of their lack of dependency management. Are they out Are they out of luck? Or do they have to just sort of say, well, we never went after clean architecture from the beginning, now we just have to create a new system that is that? Or is there some way to transition or transform? Uh, how do you begin to massage or, or bring a system that isn't following or doesn't really have these architectural considerations and kind of start making those? Uh, I've, I've written a book for Microsoft. It's a free ebook called Porting uh, Apps from, from .NET Framework to uh, .NET 6 is the latest version. Uh, it talks about a lot of the techniques and, and actual practical things you can do to try and upgrade uh, a .NET MVC, like an ASP.NET MVC on .NET Framework to uh, .NET 6 and covers a lot of these ideas. Um, but basically, it comes down to refactoring, and it depends on where you're starting from. Uh, if they already have, let's say, just a single project that's got all the stuff in it, um, that's actually easier to migrate because you don't have to switch the dependency direction on a lot of things between the projects. Um, the ones that are tougher, uh, and it's unfortunate because this is so many of them, are the ones that use the classic N-tier style architecture where you have the UI that has a project reference and depends on the business layer, which has a project reference and depends on the data layer, which of course talks to the database. Now all your project dependencies are pointing in the direction of your infrastructure, your database. Uh, and you have to flip those all on their head. You have to use the dependency inversion principle uh, to invert those dependencies. Um, and that is a little more challenging. And what you typically need to do is create new projects to represent what I would call the core project and the infrastructure project. And they'll probably stand side by side with those existing BLL and DAL uh, business logic layer and data access layer uh, libraries for, for some time while you're making the shift. Uh, and then there's there's a whole lot of different ways to skin uh, a migration from an old system to a new system. Uh, one of my preferred favorite ways is what I call operating with vertical slices. And that's where you, you take a feature uh, that the user needs to do, like, say, logging in or adding an item to their cart, uh, and you implement that entire slice through the architecture all the way from the UI to the business layer, data layer, database, uh, and you do it all in the new way that you want to do it uh, and have that sit side by side, you know, perhaps under the same web interface uh, as the the old way. Um, and you just keep doing that until all the features have migrated. And that's a fairly low risk way to do it as opposed to, you know, taking a team and, and putting them in a, a separate room somewhere and say, go rebuild this the new way uh, and come back to us in a year. And, you know, that, that rarely works as well as you, you might like. So an, another fancy thing that, that everyone's talking about, right, is microservices. How does clean architecture fit into microservices? It works really well in my experience. Um, so the clean architecture you know, solution template that I have, it's pretty small. Uh, like I say, it's only got three main projects uh, plus a bunch of tests. And you can use that as a microservice template uh, because a microservice 
uh, bringing back domain-driven design should generally be a bounded context. It's not always true, but it's a good place to start. Um, and so your bounded context is where your domain model, where your language makes sense, where that model applies. Uh, and so a microservice should be small enough that it only has one bounded context in it. Uh, and so the domain model types that you're working with would all go into the core project. Uh, all the infrastructure that it might need would go in its infrastructure and then its endpoints, however they're exposed, whether it's listening to messages or exposing an API, um, that would all go in the, in the UI or the web project that would be with it. Um, and so you, these microservices would each be a single solution. Uh, that solution would have a small number of, of well-known projects, and you would deploy those as separate web apps or in containers with Kubernetes, et cetera. So, so what else? What have we not covered through the last 20 years? Or, or what, what do you think the next 20 years might look like for, for .NET, for architectural concerns, for for latest and greatest technologies or, or sky's the limit. What do you think we, we could look forward to in the next 20 years? Wow. All right. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I haven't really given that a ton of thought. I'm usually more focused on what, what's happening right now. Um, as Microsoft looks forward, I think they're going to want to continue to bet on the cloud for them to bet on the cloud. They're going to have to have easier ways for people to build uh, distributed systems that probably use more event driven architectures uh, than what we have now. And the reason for that uh, comes back to, it's almost coming full circle to the dependency that we had uh, with web forms, now that I think about it. So totally off the cuff here. Um, with web forms, when you built these systems uh, and you had these drag and drop controls that you would use, uh, so frequently those ended up making your UI tightly coupled to the business logic and the data logic and things like that. Today, when people are building what I would say is sort of naive microservices or naive distributed systems, there is an overemphasis on uh, types of communication that tend to use uh, either HTTP or gRPC and synchronous calls rather than more event-driven uh, approaches. And so what that's doing is it's creating tight coupling between these microservices, which are supposed to be independent of one another. Uh, whereas if you used more message-based approaches, you would be able to more more easily take different services down or version them or change them without it impacting all of their neighbors. Uh, and so if, if Microsoft can make that easier, can start building language features, frameworks, tooling around, uh, making it easier to think about event-driven uh, communication between these different collaborating services instead of uh, more, more RPC, you know, direct API call communication, I think that will probably uh, be helpful. Uh, maybe in the next, say, five years. And then, you know, it takes a long time for stuff to be adopted in, in the industry. So, you know, 10 or 15 years out, it might just be that that becomes more mainstream. Um, so that'd be one area that I could I could potentially see stuff like that uh, evolving. I'm, I'm waiting for uh, JSOAP to, to be created. And then, because yeah. we just came out with a new RPC, right? right. So, so now we need JSOAP, uh, which will be SOAP, but not XML. And right. then... And then after that, well, I, I am struggling to remember the actual name of this project, but you know, uh, Project Indigo, um, the communication thingy. Uh, is it, yeah. Anybody remember the name of it? No. Anyway, um, then we'll we'll have that, and that'll be like the the generic communication thing that you're talking about. But it'll it'll basically be that application, just just a a newer re re envisioning right. of it. Everything old is new again. Yeah. And, and some of the stuff that we were promised over the last 20 years with .NET and have been uh, set by the wayside, you know, 
they might rekindle and bring back. Like there were, there were features that were supposed to be part of Longhorn, you know, windows that like uh, the WinFS, the windows file system, like, you know, those aren't strictly .NET related, but they're still coming out of the Microsoft camp. You know, someone might pick that up again and say, this needs to be a thing uh, and then integrate it with, with .NET. And, you know, that becomes something that, you know, gives us more capabilities. I don't foresee that specific thing happening uh, because I see more and more virtualization of files uh, rather than, you know, building some tightly coupled way to work with Windows files. But, you know, who knows? There's there's definitely other things that they've tried uh, in the web and in the API space that, that didn't win out uh, that they may return to uh, in the future and, you know, build, build better this time. I'm still waiting for my hoverboard. <laughs> All seems to come back to dependency management. Let's see here. So what resources, I know you've mentioned the, the book and you've mentioned uh, a Pluralsight. Uh, what other resources might there be for people who are trying to, I mean, we've covered a lot of topics, but definitely clean architecture. They're trying to understand a little bit more about that and understand how that can help them. But even just getting into .NET um, and whatnot, what, 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 do you have any resources you might call out to, to our listeners? Um, sure. So the... Uh was the conference .NET Conf uh, last November? I did do a, a really short, like a thirty-minute clean architecture presentation there. That's on YouTube. Uh, last time I checked, it was the the most popular uh, YouTube video from .NET Conf, so that was kind of cool. Uh, I have longer versions of that same presentation out on YouTube as well. Uh, so if you just Google, you know, do a YouTube search for our Dallas clean architecture, you'll find them. Uh, I have a bunch of eBooks for Microsoft that you can find. Uh, I've got one on cloud native applications that I, I did with a co-author. I have one on uh, porting to .NET 6, which I mentioned. And I also have a, an architecture one that's related to the eShop on web sample. So if you just Google eShop on web uh, or presumably look at the show notes, uh, you know, you'll find the, the ebook is right there uh, with that. And it's like 100 and some pages. It's free. It's a PDF. kind of talks through the architecture and, and how that system is built. Uh, eShop on web is a great sample application. If you want to see a real app that uses clean architecture, I'd point you there. Uh, if you want to have a starting point for your own clean architecture solution, then the, you know, the GitHub slash our Dallas slash clean architecture is a good place to start for that. Um, I would uh, recommend folks that have a Pluralsight subscription, check out some of my Pluralsight stuff. I, I have courses on refactoring and solid and uh, domain-driven design that all relate to the topics we've been talking about today. Um, I think solid principles are, we didn't really dive into here, but we talked about dependency inversion. Um, clean architecture is basically where you logically end up at if you follow solid principles for your system. All right. So um, what has been helpful in your career that you might share with those just getting started or those maybe looking to level up their own careers? Um, yeah, looking back, the I'd say the two things that helped me the most in my career were some of the connections that I made early on. Um, there's a, there's a book that I, I read early in my career called Horse Sense, um, by Reese and Trout, and you can get it used, uh, typically off of Amazon, but it's been out of print forever. And the, the general premise of the book is that it's easier to be successful by latching on to someone else who's headed in the direction you want to go than to just try and do it all yourself. Um, and it has a host of stories, uh, some of which are not so relevant today, but, you know, kind of makes the point uh, of why that is and, and why you should be okay with that and not try and, you know, say, no, no, I'm going to be a self-made developer and not, you know, you know help with, accept help from anybody else. Um, and so I, I, I took that to heart and, and that has really helped me in my career uh, over the years. I've had various mentors and, and folks that have helped me 
uh, move ahead in, in what I've been doing. Uh, and then the other thing is creating and sharing what you create uh, is a huge differentiator, especially today uh, with uh, being a software developer, whether you're independent or you're an employee or you're looking for a job or, or whatever it might be. Um, folks that are looking to hire you even in this market right now where it's really good time to be a, a developer looking for work, um, they are going to Google you. They're going to look and see what can they find out about you online. Um, and if they can't find anything, uh, and but someone else that's competing for that same role has you know a whole bunch of projects on GitHub and they've got a blog and they've been tweeting professionally with their peers in the community for you know five years, you know, they're gonna definitely be a, a safer bet than someone that doesn't have any online presence. Uh, that, that gives them credibility. Uh, so, so I would say being open to uh, creating things and, and learning in public and sharing what you know with others uh, is definitely something I would recommend. So if you don't have a blog, start a blog uh, and just write about the things that, that you think are interesting. Very cool. So where can our listeners go to follow you and keep up with what you're working on? Uh, because my name is Steve Smith, there are a lot of us out there. So online, you'll find me as Ardalis, A-R-D-A-L-I-S. And I'm pretty much Ardalis everywhere. So I'm on Ardalis on Twitter, on GitHub. Ardalis.com is where you'll find my blog. Um, that's that's your best bet. All right, Steve, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, hope, hope to have you back again, maybe before another four years goes by. Um, but uh, with that, really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today. Great. I had a lot of fun. Thanks. That was Steve Smith, also known online as Ardalis. Steve works with companies that want to avoid the trap of technical debt by helping their teams deliver quality software quickly. Steve and his team have been described by clients as a force multiplier, amplifying the value of existing development teams. Steve's client list includes Microsoft, Quicken Loans, Selena Insurance, and many other satisfied customers. Steve also offers career coaching to developers through devbetter.com. If you like this episode, please like, rate, and review on iTunes. Find show notes, blog posts, and more at sixfiguredev.com. And catch us live each week on Twitch, and be sure to follow us on Twitter at SixFigureDev. This has been another episode of the Six Figure Developer Podcast, helping others reach their potential. I'm John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. <laughs>